Tasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambudhasa Namo Tasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambudhasa Namo Tasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambudhasa Udang Damang Sanghang Sami So this um, invitation to present the Dhamma, this is um, a classic traditional formula that goes right back to the time of the Buddha, early time, when it's apparently in that the the story is that this, uh, when the Buddha, after his enlightenment, surveyed the world and thought, wow, this this, uh, Dhamma that I've realized is quite subtle Um, people look that they're really caught up with loads of you know pretty gross stuff I don't think this is going to go down you know (laughs) and uh, so why waste my time you know Uh, and then this uh, Brahma Sahambhati Brahma is is a high divinity whatever you want to make of that. <clears throat> and uh, Sahambhati, the, it's called the Apati, means a father or a supervisor, Saham, all. So the supervisor of all. You know, the lord of the cosmos, you might say. Supervisor of all. Comes down bend, on a bun-bended knee, bends his knee, kneels down and says, the, puts his hands in Anjali, says, please, Lord, um, There are those with a little dust in their eyes. Please present the Dhamma for them out of compassion or out of empathy. Anukampi mang pajang. As you heard those words. Out of of a sense of resonance or empathy with fellow humans and uh, those with a little dust in their eyes. When you have a little dust in your eyes, it still feels like a lot. You notice. Because it's right in your eye. <laughs> so, and it hurts like a piece of grit. So it's like it's all you've got is dust. Um, so sometimes we can feel the sense of, of overwhelmed and how can I manage all this and my mind is out of control and really lost in our piece of dust, stuck in the eye. If you have piece of grit in your eye you know everything and you just notice is that doesn't it so you get entranced by that <clears throat> that piece of dust 
and uh, the irritating contact and the frustration and all that builds up. So when the Buddha, uh, he tried, his first attempt to teach didn't, didn't work because he just gave a kind of presentation, I am your conquering, I know the supreme truth. And this person he said, who he talked to said, well, good, fine. That's good for you, you know, because everybody says that and <laughs> wandered off. Didn't have a practical uh, application. So then, so he thought, well, those people I was practicing with, my old companions, I go to see them. And as soon as, and when he came to their presence, he said, the doors of the deathless are open. Let those who can attend, hearken, widen, be receptive, bring forth your faith, your, your sadha, the word faith. Mm. It means you're open, you're receptive, you're available. You know. I mean, faith is a, is a, a very fine quality. It's one of those words that teeters on the edge of extinction. Or it just meant, means belief. Faith in Buddhist sense doesn't mean belief. Uh, belief is always something that fills up the space with some dogma or ideology. Faith is the thing that keeps the space open. <laughs> so it's actually slightly contradictory to... But it means it has this sense of there is a better or something worthwhile, something, you know, a development, something possible for me. And you realize if we didn't have that, you know, then life would indeed be really miserable. But somehow we do have this faculty of, you know, something is possible. I don't quite know what to do, but something. There's this sense. That's why it's called a fundamental support faculty, or indriya. It's the first uh, of, of, of these support faculties. And the, the, another thing that this Brahma Sahampati did, he had a, you know, a little conversation with the Buddha, and he said to the Buddha, uh, um, these five faculties uh, merge in the deathless. It's true, blessed one, it is, it is well known, blessed one, that the, the five faculties of faith, uh, energy or, or effort actually, applied energy, persistence, mindfulness, Samadhi or concentration and Panya, wisdom or discernment, these five faculties merge in the deathless. They are developed, they fully develop, they merge in the deathless. So, this term, you know, Buddha is saying the doors to the deathless are open, bring forth your faith. And these five faculties merge in the deathless. Yeah, yeah. And rather like the faculty of faith, you know, you, you can't exactly find it as a thing there. It's not an object out there. It's sort of, almost you could say, it's something that isn't an object of attention that we can really define. See, we just know it's present. We know we have confidence. We know this feeling that there's something worthwhile. There's some, you know, there's some sense of, you know, life is possible, interesting. Where is that? Is it a thing? Is it an emotion? Is it, where is it? I don't know. It's there. You know. um, and it's, this is <coughs> reminds us, really, that these, uh, these indriyas, these faculties, you might say, they're almost behind our normal mind. Our normal mind is always 
holding on to or looking for some particular object or thing to, you know, relish or organize or sort out or have an opinion about. You know, it's, it's, it's object seeking. And these indriya are always like behind the object seeking. They're, they're in back of that. So they help us when they're present to assess why we're looking, what we're, why bother, you know, what we're looking at. They're almost the, the precursors of attention. They precede attention or they stand behind attention. And that's useful because attention itself is, is a normal function of, con- of mental consciousness but it's by no means enlightened. You know, it's, it's, it's just a, a, a contraction of awareness into a partic- onto a particular object, like a thought. We attend. You feel when you give attention to something, your mental horizons narrow and sharpen up, and you get a very fine degree of, of definition of that particular object, such as when you're with your eyes, you see something and you focus right on it, and the other stuff goes fuzzy and disappears. With the mind, it's even more the case that we can become so uh, deeply attentive to one particular object that everything else disappears. Time, place, other people, it was all gone. And uh, we kind of like that experience, you know? You, you know. you can get buried in something, and it's just the finding that what's the good one to get buried in, just you know, push your little console and flash the thing comes on the screen and gone, you know. <laughs> so that, that's attention, you know, it's just like, uh, and then, but then the mind gets kind of passive or lazy with that, just we'll switch the next thing on. I've had enough of that one, switch this one on. Something else to absorb into. And then when we come to a retreat, see, he's looking for the console, like where's the, the bit to, you know, <laughs> Uh, I don't like this channel. <laughs> Where's the button? It's, it's all rubbish. <laughs> but you can't switch the thing off. <laughs> so you wander around the day wondering, you know, what to do, really. And then give me the thing. Teacher, give me the thing, the one thing to get there, to hold on to, the one thing. I can get into. Give me the one thing. There must be the one thing to get into that will hold my mind together, make me feel steady, stable. It'll be the one thing, and I'll know how to get to that thing. When I go home, I can have another thing I can get into, and just dong, there it is. <laughs> um, but uh, the Buddha and, and the Dhamma never teaches one thing. There's no such thing as a one thing. So if there is one thing, he'd say the one thing is be heedful. Wake up, be careful, be on the ball, be alert, be heedful. Have a sense of conscience, concern, realizing cause and effect, realizing what this mind can do, you know, for good and for bad. Be, be balanced, be heedful. So there's one thing, that. So, you know, where's the heedful button? <laughs> Well, you know, here it is. <laughs> not particularly, it's not really an object, is it? It's a mode. As he says, a way of operating, just being heedful, knowing what we think, what we say, what we do has effects, 
and even what we don't think, don't say, don't do, that has effects. So we're in a field of cause and effects and just uh, know what you're doing. You know? So, you know, with that instruction, you begin to have some way of um, surveying experience, which again is not one thing. It's holistic, it means there's thoughts, emotions, sensations, bodies, you know, internal, external. It's, it's not a one thing at all. It's a whole, you know, range of things, like a kaleidoscope is continually moving and new stuff's coming up, yeah. And so then you say, well, actually, what, is the, what in this is worthwhile giving attention to? Not that that thing itself is so important, but the act of being discerning about what we attend to is important. And we recognize this is worthwhile attending to for a while, for a purpose, to give rise to something else. It's not a thing to get lost in. It's not a thing to hold on to. It's not a thing that you've got to, you know, worship. It's just something that's useful for a certain period of time in certain circumstances, and then you pick up another thing. Mindfulness of breathing is useful. But if you're, you know, trying to get into sensations in your nostrils when you're driving a car, this is going to be dangerous. You know, but when you're in a traffic jam, it might be a good thing to do. Why not? You know, rather than get angry. You know? so, so there's no one thing. There are possibilities and uh, options and um, there's, there's, there's a whole range of, of things in this kaleidoscope of experience. So what we really need to do is not so much absorb into the, to, to one thing, but know what is how to handle this quality of attention, you know, that can go into that and really get into that, or it can go into that and get to that. Because whatever you attend to, it means you miss out everything else, don't you? So you know, that sense of having attention that's agile, fluid, balanced, isn't entranced with itself. It's not entranced with an object. It knows how to pick it up, how to put it down, what it's useful for, and then how to move on, you know? So, and, and you know, this is really perhaps nothing new. But, um, you know, when we begin to really uh, contemplate the, the Dhamma, the Buddha's teachings, then we realize there's there's no one thing, you know. Sometimes people like to, well, it's being mindful is the one thing. Just be really mindful. No, afraid not. <laughs> it's not that. <laughs> you know, you see mindfulness. In, in Buddhism, we have lists. We always have lists, you know. Like we worship lists. <laughs> we love lists. We have the threes, the fives, the sevens, the tens, the thirty-sevens, the eights, the fours. And so this means that there's no such thing as a one thing. Everything rests in a nested hologram of, or a mandala of many things. And they, they count, they balance each other out. You see, so mindfulness can be seen as within a list of the eightfold path, which is headed by right view. In other words, understanding cause and effect, what's going to be useful or not. Mindfulness is just the ability to bear something in mind, you know, to stay with something, to rest your mind on something, just purely to rest on it and to 
know how it is. So it's a necessarily useful faculty. But then you want to have some sense of what, what do you want to rest your mind on. <laughs> you know? So there's wisdom involved, and the first aspect of wisdom is right view. Whatever you put your mind onto, that's going to affect what you feel. So, you know, uh, you know, so right view, and um, in this particular list, the five indriyas, the five support faculties, we have faith and application or energy, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. And they balance, they balance each other. They, they're a little nested mandala of Dharma factors. So, you know, and then it's really uh, recognizing the, the way that all these things overlap and the merging in the deathless. When there's a balance, which you could say is the one thing. <laughs> Yeah, it's a nice one to pluck out of the air. So you say, balance, is that a thing? Well, there's a word, balance, but is that one, th- is it a thing? So if there is, you know, something we could summarize, we find that it isn't really a thing at all, like Nibbana is not a thing. It's not something you can hold as an object. It's not a state of mind. It is basically the mind released from trying to find one thing. <laughs> you know, which keeps it so ag- agitated and activated, doesn't it? What, it's like a, that relinquishment of not just of things, but even of the idea that there's a something there, you know, internally or externally. You know. But then Nibbana... The realization of Nibbana rests upon many things coming together, many faculties, many modalities of consciousness, many, um, you know, these appropriate modes of attention, you know, cooperating. Just like when you, uh, you know, when you get the whole uh, lights, and I think it's red and green lights, if you put them together, you get white. So it's, it's in the merging of many factors that, in this example, you know, white light occurs as a merging of all the other factors. Yeah. So we can experience something, but it's really through the blending and merging of, of different faculties. And these faculties are innate. They, they are, in other words, they, they, are, they are there for us. They are maybe latent or not exercised or imbalanced yeah so the point is to in dhamma practice is to create opportunities and occasions for the arousing and the activation of these faculties yeah so the faith and and see you know you all came here with some idea let's hope it wasn't completely deluded that there'd be something worthwhile in doing this going through this 10 days of of whatever it is, you know, they feel they think it'll do you some good. <laughs> you know? And some of you have done quite a few of these. And still, you know, realizing, oh, you know, greed, anger, grief, you know, pain, pain in the body 
all these painful memories coming up and stuff like that. And, you know, the, all the objects that come up are often not particularly agreeable. You know? Or occasionally you get some fleeting joy comes through. <laughs> but then you hunger for that for the rest of the retreat. And then so it, it goes sour. Yeah, so where was the mindful thing? Where was, where was the mindful thing? I wanted to be mindful. Well, did you notice you know, that, you're, that the, the um, anxiety in your mind moved and changed? Yeah, well, that was called being mindful. <laughs> it wasn't a thing. It was a mode of operating. Yeah. And uh, so this sense of uh, we do begin to sense somehow that the, one of the results of practice is that some of the intensity of this whole drama abates. You know, the dust in the eye sort of, you know, it starts to dissolve or soften. You know? And it's not that we're really looking to see anything, but just to have the sense of clarity and no longer so you know, tr- triggered and reactive and caught with these things that seem to stick themselves into us, you know. So that's a result. You know. you know, you go home, what did you experience? Well, tired and felt a bit irritable and sad. And, you know, but at the end of it, I didn't mind anymore. <laughs> <laughs> It was less, I was less worked up about it. It's just I had this more sense of compassion because I realized everybody goes through this and it, it ceased to really catch me. It, fade, it started to fade, the intensities fade. That's definitely, to my mind, that's definitely progress, you know. And, you know, I've had some nice things happen in, in meditation, but overall, what I really trust in the long run is that life is kind of okay. You know, the things, the, you know, I'm much more aware of all kinds of not particularly pleasant things in my psyche, and they don't get me. I think my mind, I've realized that my mind, I've seen just about every kind of emotion in my mind. <laughs> Violence. <laughs> Grief, pain, resentment, the whole, whole spectrum of them all. I just, um, I'm not phased by it, it's just that. You know? And having not been so phased by it, then less energy goes into it and it just doesn't arise. It just because there's less involvement, less energy, less making an issue out of it. And so the whole of that stuff just kind of goes cooler and quieter. It's like, you know, but it's the uh, it's a process, in fact, <clears throat> and that to me gives rise to a sense of faith rather than belief. So it's not because I've had some amazing thing that happened, uh, but the sense of this faith in the power of the Dhamma. You know, it just and my, I enter the Dhamma by being present and giving attention to and not giving up on what my experience, I'm kind of allowing it to teach me, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, to teach me where I get caught, where I get obsessive, where I get reactive, where I, I get, you know, reckless. So I'm allowing it to teach me that and then 
assessing that with wisdom, I don't need to do that. I don't need to do that. We start to, through that process of, of, of heedfulness and, and faith, we begin to see we've got some choices in our reactions and reflexes. It's, it's giving us more opportunity. Less compulsive. Yeah. This is really, uh, these, these faculties then you see you can apply, use application towards things that are modes of being, ways of operating, that you really are more clear about and you feel this is worthwhile. You're not compulsively doing stuff. You're not compulsively acting on things, but you, you have more discrimination. And you say, oh, I want to apply myself to that. Just something like right speech. Yeah. How I can just go through some of these speech habits and the places where I was careless, flippant, dismissive, harsh, you know, I hadn't really noticed it. Noticing those tonalities, I can just study that. Then the results, less agitation, less conflict, uh, less regret, mind feels sweeter. So... You know, we take any, any of the processes of our body and mind. It's holistic, it means anywhere you work, you're doing the same thing, whether it's in your body, in your speech, in your livelihood, you're really looking at the same. It's holistic, it means every, every little bit of it, you're doing the same thing in every little bit of it, which is you're, you're heedful of it, you have faith. There, will, there can be something a better for me through giving this appropriate attention. Yeah. And effort, applying oneself, mindfulness, just bearing it in mind, staying there long enough to witness cause and effect, and samadhi, concentration, and assessment, wise assessment. Now the faculty of, of, of concentration or samadhi, and I always say, Samadhi or concentration, or because the very word concentration um, can easily be seen as that very same act of attention that I've talked about, which is just the you know focusing on one object, holding down one object, because um, that yeah that is concentration, you know, really on that, and it isn't always so good, you know, it isn't always so good. Um, there is such a thing as right concentration or samasamadhi, which is arrives it is one arrives at through a careful process. And the process is simply the continual reenactment of is this necessary? If it's not necessary, put it aside. Is this worthwhile? If it's worthwhile, linger in it, stay with it, enjoy it. That's the that's what samadhi is. There's nothing that mystical really it's just I don't need to do that stop doing it I don't need to be with that stop doing that this is the good thing stay with that enjoy enjoy yeah and there are certain now there are certain uh, places where we can place our attention where the enjoyment gets very strong and uh, and skillful so is it is it wholesome yeah is it uh, appropriate um, 
Is it something that we can have some say over? And we find, generally speaking, that you know, the breathing is a very appropriate um, object. And you say, well, you don't need to, to be this, you don't need to be with that, just be with that. Yeah? And it's that sense of relinquishment. Rather than, I've got to hold this thing to get samadhi, just feel that. Feel the energy of that mind state. Yeah. Do you want to encourage that mind state? <laughs> Can you feel the energy in that? Yeah. And then what about, I don't need to do that. I just can rest in breathing in and breathing out. Feel the energy of that. And the past, and the very interesting thing to keep remembering is that samadhi is accompanied by wholesomeness. That is, is virtuous. Yeah. It means it's and it's and it's a way of training yourself in refinement of virtue, because this isn't just about you know not slugging people or lying. It's about not being harsh or demanding, yeah, or manipulative or shortcuts. It's it's a it's a refinement. It's beautiful. It's like beautiful behaviour in your own body and mind. It's respectful, beautiful behavior in your own body and mind. So it's a refinement of virtue to, to something called beauty. You know? Not just good, bad, but what is really beautiful? What is a beautiful way of attending? And you know, so this is virtue. It's the gentle, the thorough, the caring, the careful, the warm, the empathic. Those modes, that's what we want to encourage. Because then that quality, again, this is holistic again, what you put onto your, your breathing, those, those, fac- those factors that you encourage, those are the factors you want to encourage in your life. You know? Every small bit you know, refers to the whole bit. So you don't want to be encouraging factors that are not going to be appropriate to the larger field, the larger domain of our experience. But thoroughness, patience, virtuousness, gentleness, warm-heartedness, these are definitely appropriate. So we just collect that together, collect that together around a suitable object. And this uh, object of the breathing, because it's so uh, suffuses our entire body, when you breathe in and out, the energy of that suffuses your entire body. You're taking that quality through every nerve, every cell. Yeah? So you're bringing that, the beauty and the joyfulness and the thoroughness, not just as an idea, but really into, into your living tissues. Yeah? And of course, into your emotions, because the breathing directly affects your emotions, your emotional state. So this is holistic again, isn't it? Body, mind... Emotions, nervous system, body, thinking tends to slow down, become quieter, just because you're enjoying yourself. So you haven't, don't have to have this continual what, what to do, where to go, and you know, that, that cools down. So, you know, samadhi is arrived at through holistic uh, balancing of qualities, and every one of them are things we can rely upon. 
You don't miss any out. The good, the true, the beautiful is one way of assessing it. You know, the virtuous, the uh, patient, the thorough, the mindful, you know. And so these lists, you can have lists of three, lists of five, lists of seven, lists of 38, 7, 15, 29, you know, because it's just like dividing the cake of Dhamma. How many slices do you want? Do you want three slices? Okay, sila samadhi panya. How about four slices? (laughs) Four foundations of mindfulness. You want five slices? Five indriyas. (laughs) Six, we can do six if you like. You want seven? We can do seven. (laughs) How do you like it? You want 10? We can do 10 parameters, 10 (laughs) this, that, and the other. So there's always, you know, just whatever you want. Because it's all ways of talking about a mandala, you know, like a a whole um, gathering together of faculties. And some one faculty, when you explore it, could open up to several within that. Hmm? So the one thing we might say is be heedful, be Careful, be uh, have right view. Uh, be a, you know. So these are really not objects; these are ways of operating. And when we really kind of get that and realize that this uh, sense of of uh, enjoyment, calm, wholesome, sustainable, refreshing enjoyment comes around not through trying to have that experience, but just through operating in a decent (laughs) and thoroughly good way. (laughs) This is a very important message to really get in to the nervous system, isn't it? Not just as an idea, but really to feel the results of that, because then that's going to transfer to everything we do. That's, That's samadhi. And that's why samadhi breeds wisdom. Yeah. Because you really get to experience for yourself the results of skillful causes. In a way, very direct in your own body, not just as an idea, but you feel it in your body. And your body doesn't tell lies. It doesn't know how to. So then that's a wisdom you can definitely trust. Nobody's telling it to you. You you know it for yourself. So then these, this is really a, a wonderful way of learning how to live. Yeah. And because it's not about an object, but about how we behave, then naturally that transfers to whether you're working, looking after the kids, you know, whatever you're doing. It's how you do it that counts. And in this, so this makes really our life then becomes quite, quite open to a range of of. of you know, activities that we can do. These faculties and these faculties, as you in as you develop them, if you do it the right way, they don't go back. They don't, you know, like like something you have, you can have it and then you can lose it. But this is like when you develop these faculties, you don't have them and then lose them because they're there. You know? you, you've, you, they've become uh, part of the way you operate. They've become entrained. You know, it's just the way that you operate. So certainly, you know, um, I've noticed in, in my own life just the, um, 
a great willingness to be with the unknown because I, I like, I enjoy, and I have confidence in the feeling of faith. I trust. I don't know, you know, I don't know what I'm going to talk about in the evening or in the morning. Sometimes I don't know a minute in advance what I'm going to talk about. I just trust if I stay in the right place, something will come rolling out of my mouth that will do somebody some good. <laughs> and, you know, and you get a certain percentage of... of <laughs> Sometimes it doesn't work, but you know, you keep going, don't you? And uh, <laughs> I like to live that way. I like to live that way. That sense of life is uh, life is an open book. It's a mystery. How interesting! You know, what will the next? What will be on the next page? It's not written already. I don't know. It's interesting. Yeah. Life is a pilgrimage. And sometimes uh, as you know, we do these pilgrimages or tudongs as they're called, which is long distance walks, and these are uh, these, uh, these people that the monks and nuns really enjoy because they are acts of faith. You don't really know whether you're going to get anything to eat. You don't entirely know what the weather's going to do. But you like that sense of well, let's just trust it, go for it, you know, do the right things, do the skillful things, and just see what happens. So it's a real um, leaning, you might say, or an inclination towards the power of the Dhamma, you know, to, to look after you. And, and one becomes more confident in that, and it's a great source of joy. Better than having it all worked out and controlled, so these are, then this is, these are the faculties that merge in something that doesn't pass away, doesn't end, or called the deathless, something that doesn't, isn't about birth and death. I, know I was on a, a pilgrimage, and the pilgrimage I was around Mount Kailash in, in Tibet. This is a, about six years ago, seven years ago. And this, this is quite arduous because the, the um, altitude is um, 17 to 19,000 feet. So you can't, you don't get much. The oxygen level is half and less than it is uh, in the normal, uh, normal sea level, you might say. So you can't breathe. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can breathe, it doesn't do much good because there's not much in it. Uh, and I found this really interesting experience because um, it a, it's a sacred place. Mount Kailash is uh, a place that's always used as a pilgrimage spot. It's an amazing place out in the wilds of, of um, northwest Tibet, which is really desolate, empty, you know, very edgy, you know. And uh, so it kind of light, lights, lights up certain light bulbs for me. You know, look, this is interesting. No, you know, insecure, good. Um, see what this will do. And the, the pilgrimage is, is described as a kind of journey through birth and death. Uh, uh, so it, that, it's a sacred, sacred um, rotation around this mountain. 
And, be, and what it, the experience of being there is very precipitous because, because you can't get the oxygen. You're in this quite light-headed state. You know, you're oxygen deprivation, you're quite light-headed. And as you're trying to walk along, what oxygen you've got is being used up just in walking. So one thing that starts to happen is you can't think. You know, it take, it really take, you realize it takes effort to think. Normally, our, our energies are so trained to do that, you just can't stop thinking. But there, you, it's difficult to think. You look at something... Uh, And it doesn't happen, you know. <laughs> Which is amazing, because after a while, you can't keep your neurosis going. It's not, it's just, you can't keep telling yourself how what a mess you are. <laughs> and how you're doing it wrong, and, you know, what's going to be the result of this, and why bother anyway. You just can't keep that going. You just, so it's quite a relief. You can't keep your story going. You can't keep your, pers- your personality structure starts to just kind of quieten down. You don't know who you are. <laughs> and you start to realize that that, which is normally such a constant companion in the inner muttering, the inner mumbling and muttering that we take ourselves as being, it doesn't have to be there. It, Wow, who's this? (laughs) If you can think, you don't really think, you just get this sense of... uh, (laughs) What's going on, you know? But through through the practice, one can be aware of that state of that and feel... Okay, I can be with this. It's not a thought, but there's some sense of, fine, I can be with this. Or there is being with this. There is being with the don't know what is going on. Can't you know, work this out. There's being with this. How long is this going for? Don't know. And there's some sense of just being able to be with this faith in that. An experience of, of loss of the ending. You know, like a pieces of one's world have died. You know, if you like, they've gone. And uh, um, and then it's difficult. Sometimes you can't sleep either. You know, the body doesn't sleep. It just it lies in this strangely hyper hypo state. Um, and there's a point at which, in this mandala, you, you come to a place on the Vajra Yoginis burial ground where the encouragement is to, as you start the the circuit as if you've just been born. Like, drop everything, just go start like life beginning again. And you come to this point, it says, now is the time to die. At this place, give everything you have, give it away. Give up your life, give it away, die. Yeah. So, and you're encouraged you know, to either cut your hair or take something of your clothing and throw it away, or have something you'd really just really gives, give away something that you're quite identified with. And, and at that place, you, you, you bring up the perception and the real recognition of, of death. And it's not difficult to do because you're in this state anyway. And you just give up, give up, 
give up. That's it. And sitting there and giving up everything. And that beautiful feeling of deep gratitude. Not thinking anything, just this swelling up of deep, the beauty of having been, the beauty of having been offered this amazing, confusing, amazing existence. You know, a sense of deep gratitude. And then give it up, give everything up. And, uh, and then after that, you have to climb the pass, you climb up to what's called the Dolmala, which is a, which is a, um, a col. In other words, it's a, it's a high pass between two peaks. And this is, it's a, you have to climb 2,000 feet um, with very little energy. It's very difficult to eat around Mount Kailash because your body doesn't want to eat. It can't metabolize food. So you maybe drink something. So two or three days not having eaten, an oxygen deprivation, and, you know, <laughs> and then a 2,000 foot climb. Time, you, and you generally, you start to learn how to do it. As you take so many steps, then you lean on something. Because you can't sit down. If you sit down, it takes too much effort to stand up. So you just find something to lean on. And you stagger on a bit more, lean on something, stagger a bit more, lean on something, and just gradually go up this, to the top of this pass. And this pass is amazing, uh, like a Garden of Eden, because it's uh, a place which is festooned with colored silks and prayer flags, and uh, you literally walk through s- silks that are you know, a foot deep, of people playing down prayer flags over, over months and years. And then there's um, posts with festooned with prayer flags. So it's, it's come this incredible uh, world. And the, the air up there is quite fine, and often you get the sunshine with no clouds. So in this very refined realm you come to, you know, like you've died. <laughs> and here you are. <laughs> and, oh. And you've just given everything. So it's lovely feeling, and there's the faith, and the mindfulness is there. You can, you can stay with that and abide in that. It's not an object. It's a whole mode of being. And this doesn't die. You, know, you really sense this is the bit that doesn't die. The rest of it is going to go. The feeling, the physical form the projects, the ability to control things, make things work. This is going to go, isn't it? We're going to lose it. Our ability to predict the future, to make things happen, to, you know, it's going to go. It's all going to go. These faculties don't go. That's why we're developing them. You know? We're developing as a mode of behavior. We came over that pass and then and then they, you have to get to the next place to, to rest for the night. And, uh, uh, and, then you, and it's another five hours of walking. So having kind of given it all up and got to the top of this peak, you've got another five hours of struggling <laughs> to go. And uh, it's, you, know, you can't think. There's no end. It's just you're just walking. Like like just, just, just persistence. There's nothing there but persistence and faith, and you're mindful. 
You know, there seems to be no energy, but just this going on and on and on, like it's a strange uh, hallucination of endless walking. And finally, we got to a place to, to rest, and I just, you know, managed to, f- to find a piece of flat ground. I had a, a small tent, a very simple tent to put up. Somehow put it up, and I just dived into it, got a, some sort of warm thing and threw it over me and lay there. Kind of. <laughs> I am dead. I have died. <laughs> and you could do the whole bit, you know, and then somebody because we can't, we're not eating in the evening, but somebody brewed up some soya milk, so they passed this uh, big mug of soya milk through the tent, and I put my hand up, and I carved this soya milk, and I was lying down, and my elbow was propped on the floor with this soya milk, and I was looking at it, <laughs> trying to figure out what this meant, you know, and <laughs> realizing this is, means something, and then the thought would go, you look at it again, and you realize it's me. There was something you used to do with this thing. <laughs> you couldn't remember what it was. And then the thought would die. And you're just then looking at this thing. And then the attention would go somewhere else. And it's lying there. And somebody came by like an hour later. And I was still lying there with this mug of soya milk on the end of my hand looking at it. <laughs> like, and I was trying to figure out you're supposed to put it in your mouth. But I couldn't get it together to get it from there into to the mouth. You know? I just couldn't, I couldn't do that amount of work you know, and, and calculating and organizing. It just, yes. But I didn't spill a drop. You know? The body just knew there was that mindfulness of, of knowing, somehow knowing, you know, what, where this was, and it couldn't do anything, yet knowing, you know, aware, mindful of, of that. You know. yeah, so I just kind of lay there two hours with this thing propped on my elbow without spilling it or dropping it, not doing anything. But just, it was there, that quality of, of mindfulness, of bearing in mind without thinking some some sense of you know a, a knowing what this was about which was not thought and it was just there not to spill it and uh, so on so it was kind of interesting you know seeing when the thought goes and the energy body energy goes and the memories go there still can be that quality of mindfulness I don't think it's anything so special about me particularly, but the fact that one has definitely trained in that way, holding objects, staying with things, bearing with things, whether they're pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, mine, yours, indifferent, just bringing it in mind, holding it steadily, bearing that in mind. And the result is that's what the mind, that's what awareness does. it's established. It doesn't go away. The objects of attention go away. The things that seem to be myself go away. What's left? Something that doesn't die. And so, you know, that's just uh, an experience and 
make of it what one will. But the Buddha used the word the deathless, very evocative term, saying you know, those who are heedful, heedfulness is the path of the deathless, those who are heedful do not die, those who are not heedful are dead already. It's like we're just like dead fish in a stream being thrown around, you know, if, we're, if there's no heedfulness, we're just like that. But the, if there's heedfulness, is the path to the deathless. Yeah. And it's the, you could say, if there's one thing, it's this which catalyzes or is the, the big container or the big basket that all these other faculties can sit within you know, and grow within and develop within. When we, again, just to go back to this, uh, the cultivation of samadhi, I think it is an in, uh, important and helpful cultivation because not so much about you know, getting into some particular state, but as an exercise or a process in refining and cultivating virtue on a refined level of cultivating and refining steadiness and enjoyment, and assessment, wisdom, so we see this is not helpful, put that aside. Just to really get those and also experience the beauty, the beauty of behaving intimately, clearly in a skillful way. You know? And so the whole system can then rest in that. You know? Now when you, you know, so, but what it isn't about, it's about putting aside unskillful behaviors, it's not so much about ignoring feelings or sensations or parts of your body. It's about putting aside unskillful behaviors or what you don't need to be doing. So when we recognize this and look at some of the Buddha's instructions, and he's saying things like, you know, uh, he doesn't get that specific about, for example, where to place one's attention. He's saying, be mindful, standing, walking, sitting, lying down, scratching, urinating, eating, whatever you're doing, be mindful. Well, which one? The whole lot. Um, then when you're breathing, just know you're breathing. He doesn't say breathe in your nose, your belly, your chest, your throat. This kind of breath just says know you're breathing, be aware of breathing. And naturally, we can choose, if you wish, you know, whichever place you find most comfortable or agreeable or the most accessible place that works for you. That's fine. You know. So know you're breathing in, know you're breathing out. Be with the rhythm and the energy of that. And what is giving rise to a sense of collectedness, steadiness, stability? And you just start to check that out. It's partly about where you attend, but a lot of it's about how, how you attend. Attend with patience, attend with goodwill, attend with a sense of balancing. You know? And then you start to bring that quality into your breathing. And then he says, uh, 
breathe, experiencing, thoroughly sensitive to the entire body, or specifically the body energy, kaya sankara, the frame. So we might look at what we mean by body energy. It means everything, all that sense of pressures and movements and fluttering and vibrations uh, that are running around in the body. Thoroughly attentive to this entire experience of being embodied with its pressures and warmth and tinglings and then even the uncomfortable feelings. So thoroughly sensitive to that feeling of breathing. And what it does is it, it, through opening your awareness to include the entire body, where your awareness goes, so your breathing, your breath energy moves through that. So it's an encouragement, sometimes you say, rather strangely, breathe through your shoulders, breathe through your ears, breathe through one side of your body, breathe through another side of your body. Now, in the normal way of, of considering things, this is just madness, you know, because we so associate breathing, breath, as a column of air. But the Buddha doesn't say breath, he says breathing. He doesn't say, watch your breath. He says, be aware of breathing. Breathing is not a thing. It's not an object. It's a whole set of behaviors, isn't it? Flowing, pausing, swelling, warmth. It's a whole mandala of different experiences. Actually, isn't it? Seems to me there's no such thing as a breath. <laughs> There's no such thing as a thing. <laughs> There's no such thing as a thing. Our minds are so trained to experience things as things that that's what we end up assuming is there. So if I look at this object in front, I think there's a vase of flowers. No, there's no vase of flowers. There's some colours and there's some streaky stuff, which I assume is wood. And there's, some, there's a whole range of things there that my mind says, oh, yeah, yeah, but that's a vase of flowers. It creates that. It shapes that up. It cuts that piece out of a holistic field of visual attention, doesn't it? And it sticks a name on it. But in that vase of flowers... There's no vase of flowers. <laughs> There's a seeing and color and interpretation and perception and appreciation and naming it and giving it words. That's what happens. That's the event, isn't it? That's what happens directly. A whole series of, of mental actions come together to create something. But they're all actions. Where's a vase of flowers when you haven't got a word? Yeah. It's a, 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 a when you haven't got a word. The words die. People, you know, with uh, various things like uh, Asperger's. Mm. I remember reading a book of a person who had, a, uh, I think it's Asperger's anyway. It means he was very good at numbers. So he could see the colors of numbers. 
numbers, he'd walk through a landscape of numbers. There were, you know, 32 was a kind of dove gray. And so these colors and movements and shapes of numbers were as real to him as landscapes to us. So he could do, he could do, had this amazing facility to experience what we experienced just five. So, you know, what's that? To him, five was a luxurious garden. You know, he experienced it in that way. Tuesdays were blue. Tuesdays were blue. So, you know, his experience of these things was of a different nature. The thing he couldn't do was people. He didn't know what talking to people was about. You know? He didn't, because he didn't have the emotional resonance happening. So he feel very frustrated because he see other people doing it, doing this thing where they stand close to each other and start making words. So he says, okay. So he thought that's what he'd do. So he'd just go to stand next to somebody, look at the floor and just start saying words. And he wondered why they, they didn't like it. <laughs> Because he didn't, have any, he didn't have the emotional resonators that we take for granted. They weren't there for him. Yeah. So he just see people standing, saying things, so that's what he did. And actually, sometimes that's what it's like for people to do an emotional resonator. <laughs> <laughs> just stand there jabbering away. <laughs> so what we take for granted is conversation actually and just speaking actually isn't just speaking it's sensing something feeling an emotion noticing receptivity you know getting the signs of person understands or agrees or this eye contact color tone these kinds of things well what happens naturally we don't even realize we're doing it because it's it's all built in so it's not a thing it's a holistic experience of many things coming together that give us these experiences. And every thing that we think is a thing is not a thing. It's a collection. It's aggregates. It's things, it's whole ranges of behaviors coming together. Yeah. The point about that is that it, when we really get this, when we really get this, you realize there's absolutely nothing to grasp. There's no thing that you could ever have, because there are no things. So that instinct doesn't work. That's why we get so frustrated trying to hold on to things, because there aren't any things to hold on to. We still believe in the psychology of the grasping hand, but there isn't anything to grasp. You try, and you don't get it. Dang it. I'm not grasping hard enough. I grasp the wrong thing. There must be a kind of subtler way of grasping that will get that. (laughs) I can't get a grasp of the truth or the Dhamma or meditation. I can't get it. I can't get the thing of it. I'm frustrated I can't get the thing of it. Because there isn't a thing. There's nothing to grasp. But there is appropriate behaviors that if we rest back 
and we just put aside the grasping and that incredible mythology that our attention tells us, you know, our attention creates things out of what is really collections of behaviors. It translates them. We start putting that aside with faith. So actually, you know, when, when, you, when you relax back, when you rest in yourself, rest in awareness, this expression sometimes used, you, know, you don't need to grasp anything. You're okay. It's okay. You can let it go. You can let it pass. You're okay. It can die. It can go. You're okay. This is how you get beyond death. The reflex of grasping creates death. Creates death. It means it, it, it sends our mind into something that must always break down with the feeling of the fear, the loss, the struggle, the grief, the loss, so on. That's what we mean by, the, by death. Yeah. Without that, the Buddha is saying, if you don't do that, there isn't. There's just transition, passage, ongoing, the journey. Yeah. Behave skillfully. Now, develop your behavior skillfully the journey will continue beautifully, wherever it's going. Who knows where it's going? It doesn't matter where it's going because you're going well. <laughs> That's the point. That's what we can do. That's about all we can do, really. You know? That's why we reflect on death every day. It's a reminder, don't get lost in this. Don't try and hold on to this. Don't get, believe in this lot. This is going one way, going to ending, separation, loss. That's where it goes. Don't buy into this. At the same time, you can't just shove it away. But while we're here in this strange experience, incarnation, embodiment, Handle it wisely. Use it to develop your wisdom. Use it to develop your virtue. Use it to develop your mindfulness. Use it to develop your collectedness. This is what's going to go with you. These five faculties, properly developed, properly attuned, merge in the deathless. The Buddha was not wasting his words. It's very clear on that. Of course, Buddha's body dies, passes away. Hmm. Now if we, you know, just come back again to very present moment, keep remembering, bearing in mind, you know, what, is there anything we're leaving out? What I mean is there's something that's kind of hovering or resting or pressing in us that we don't want to be with. Yeah. Are we leaving something out that's kind of there? Because we still fear it and believe in it and frightened of meeting it. We don't want to be with that pain. I don't want to be with that sadness. I don't want to be with that uncomfortable, wobbly feeling. Embrace it. 
Otherwise, it's going to kill you. (laughs) Otherwise, it's going to close you down. Otherwise, it's going to make you tight. You're only, you have to go on. You have to go on. It's not always a comfortable journey, but you have to go on. This is... uh, this is our, our faith. And if you just start working with a little bit of the uncomfortable or the thing we don't want to see or the feeling of regret or shame, you say, come on in. Come on in. I want to breathe through you. I want to take you in. I want to soak that difficulty with virtue, with kindness, with gentleness, with breathing. Come on in. You know, Then you're healing out of death, out of that constricted state. Yeah. This is what we can do. And our life, while we have these amazing opportunities to be supported, to hear the Buddha's words, to you know, be able to at least understand, you don't have to understand all of it, but understand a few bits of it. If you understand a few bits of it, you'll get, you know, it's holistic. Any few bits tell you the whole thing if they're held in balance. It's not impossible. The Buddha wouldn't have taught it if it was impossible. Um, But really get the sense of how it all balances, and it balances in skillfulness, virtue, and heedfulness. Mm. Offer this for your reflection.